Welcome to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. For the month of November, we are honoring Indigenous Heritage Month. Each week, members of our church family will be sharing stories that acknowledge and celebrate Indigenous heritage from their lived experiences to the world at large. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are continuing our celebration of Indigenous Heritage Month. We believe that honoring the multi-ethnic identity of our church means acknowledging the lived experience of our church family. And through that, growing in empathy together as brothers and sisters. To that end, we are telling stories that acknowledge and celebrate Indigenous heritage. I am Tyler Hands, one of the leaders at Bridgetown and member of the Racial Justice Committee. My name is Tabitha Leedy. I am Yurok, Wintu, and a registered member of the Weot tribe. Tab and I are in community together at Bridgetown. Uh, our families are very close. Our kids are great friends. Uh, we spoke with her in the first episode of this series about the history of indigenous peoples and what we now call Oregon and how the racism of the past continues to affect our present. So if you haven't had a chance to listen, be sure to go back and learn more from that episode. In this episode, we would like to caution you as you listen that there will be references to violence and sexual assault. But thank you, Tab, for being here again and sharing your story with us. Uh, tell us where you're from and your history in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I was born in Seattle, uh, moved when I was pretty young to a small coastal town in Oregon called Florence, uh, which is land of the Sayusla tribe. And that is where I graduated high school. So I'm pretty much from there, but uh, I definitely have a birth certificate that says Washington. Sorry. Um, but I... In, in growing up, my family was kind of rough. I, I grew up without uh, my dad. I grew up with my brother, my sister, and my mom um, and wasn't really aware of my history as far as, like, my, my bloodline. Um, mm-hmm. And it was well into um, high school, actually, that I that – I, became aware that I was enough native to to actually have a uh-huh. be a part of a tribe. Um, so that was like an interesting realization and then journey afterwards. What is the requirements for uh, tribal um, membership? Yeah, it depends on their on the tribe. Um, sometimes it's a 32nd, sometimes it's a 16th. most commonly it's at least a 16th. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad, my grandma's whole, my dad is half. I mean, I'm, I'm over that mark. <laughs> Got it. Yes. You're, <laughs> you're, you're more than just the 16th. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Tell us more about your, your grandma and your dad. Yeah. My dad is, um, he's great. He, he is a very hard person to read. Uh, he, you know drafted into Vietnam um, because he looks a lot more native than I do. Just Mm -hmm. at first glance, they actually made him in Vietnam go in and do some pretty atrocious things um, because he looked more like them. Mm -hmm. And so 
Um, he has some pretty deep wounds from that time, so he doesn't really talk about what happened in Vietnam. Um, Got it. But the, the the military strategically chose him for the color of his skin to correct. go in and uh, afflict a particular type of damage to the Vietnamese. Correct. Wow. that I'm sure that that's not something easy to have done or to recover from. Right. Yeah. Um, and then my, my grandma, she, you know, she was born a long time ago. She just recently passed away, and um, she is one of those natives that actually was told not to embrace her culture, to completely forget any kind of language, um, to assimilate with white culture, uh, to fit in and to not be ostracized. Was that kind of pressure to assimilate common in her generation? Absolutely. Most of her generation was required to go to boarding schools um, that they literally would rip your children out of your home and send them to a boarding school, and some of them never went back to Mm -hmm. their houses. Yeah, in our first episode, uh, talking about the history of Oregon, when it ended, you said we didn't make time to talk about the boarding schools. Yeah. Is that, would you be willing to share about the history of that now? Uh, sure. Yeah, I can share a little bit. Um, my grandma never actually had to go to one. She was, I don't know if lucky is the right term, but mm-hmm. she was never required to go to one um, because of just some different circumstances and where she was located. But depending on where you were living at the time, they, um, the, you know, white people would just come and essentially um show up at your door and say, we're taking your kids to these schools and just take them away. Um, you didn't get a say in whether or not that happened or not. And then oftentimes um, those schools were just grounds for a lot of abuse, um, a lot of malnourishment, a lot of abuse, and um, they didn't often return home. Yeah, so I'm sorry, Say that again. The government mandated the removal of indigenous kids from homes and enrollment into these boarding schools. These boarding schools were like, the, the, they moved kids out of homes and into schools full time. Were these schools in the same town? Were they moving them long distances away? They were removing them from their families. Yes. Um, sometimes they were in the same town, but often, I mean, they there weren't that many of the boarding schools. So the, the so parents didn't see their kids right. for long periods of time. Right. And then the environment, obviously, in these schools was was negligent. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and even, you know, 100 years later, those tribal lands are still having that battle of education of the government mandating what they can and cannot teach the kids and the tribe trying to preserve cultural values and heritage and the government telling them that they can't teach those things. So there's still a tension there of, you know, they they need funding to run their schools, so they have to adhere to some of the the mandates, but it's also like heartbreaking to hear that um, they're not allowed to teach their cultural values as well. Yeah, that is systematic assimilation. Yeah. So it sounds like the generation of your grandmother and, and likely before her, mm-hmm. this was their experience. And so it's it's no wonder that so many of them just chose to abandon their tribal 
identities. Right, yeah. So when you realized that you had um, this uh, in indigenous heritage, what did that mean for you in that moment? What, what was it like learning this, um, this heritage from your father and grandmother? Yeah, it was interesting. Like, um, I think growing up, I always felt fairly detached because I didn't have much of a relationship with my dad for so many years. Um, and it wasn't until I really um, leaned into my relationship with him, which, it, it, you know, is a, a story in and of itself, but I essentially became in a foster care kid and then um, ended up connecting with my dad late into high school and kind of learning some of my history. And then in, as I was in college, really uncovered a little bit more of what I was and became an enrolled tribal, tribal member at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but my dad is is often willing to talk about the tribe, but you really have to like pull it out of him. Um, it's not something that just comes naturally to him. He's willing to talk about it if you ask pointed questions. Um, my grandma, she didn't really talk about much at all. Um, she had a lot of like artifacts in our, our basket. Our tribe makes um, like baskets out of like pine needles and things like that, um, that you can carry food and, and they're so tightly woven that you can carry water in them too. It's actually really impressive. But um, my, even talking to my uncle who lived really closely with my grandma, um, he was explaining that as a kid, he wasn't even taught a lot of things about our heritage because she was just taught not to talk about them. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it took him investigating for himself a lot of things. And my uncle is actually registered Yurok, um, going back to like them making us choose. Right. Um, so my grandma went with the Wiat tribe and, and my uncle went with Yurok. So which of those are the federally recognized and which aren't? Both of those are federally. They are, yes. okay. Yeah, we did, uh, the Wiat tribe had ours taken away, um, but then it was given back when we appealed it. Got it. And I'm assuming there are other uh, tribal identities uh, as a part of your heritage? Right, yeah. I'm um, I'm Wintu as well, and, um, and that just, I, I don't know that I'm enough of that for it to really... Mm matter or hold in that situation but um yeah Yurok like my uncle owns land that I had explained was given to him that is kind of useless but um mm -hmm. but the government was required to give a certain amount of acreage back to to the tribe and so he was given a parcel of land that is like rocky and on a hill and you can't do anything with it right you can't develop it right. there's no resources correct Got yeah mm-hmm which seems to be the typical way in which land is returned, if it's returned at all. Right. It's mostly unusable. Yes. Um, what is, would you be willing to tell us more about the history of these particular tribes in Oregon? Where are they from? Where, where are the ancestral lands? Yeah. Um, what, what makes them unique as a tribe compared to others that were in the area? Sure. Yeah, so um, Yurok is northern California, just over the border. Uh, Yurok is actually a very large tribe. They have a lot of resources. Um, my uncles chose to be registered, affiliated with the Yurok because they were really into hunting and fishing. So um, my uncle would, you know, gillnet 
salmon off right at the mouth of the river and things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of natural resources in that area. Um, The Weeot land is just further south and it is not as resourceful, but it's it's pretty. It's like right on uh, just south of the Eureka Bay. Um, So it's it's beautiful. It's right on the beach and it's, um, you know, of course they still fish and hunt, but it's big eeling area. So (laughs) I don't uh, even know how you do that. Yeah. Well, it, you know, my dad took my stepmom on their first date and he took her eeling, which I don't know why she married him, honestly, but you have to like spear hook the eels and then throw them in the sand because they're slippery, Uh, you know, you do this on the shore. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, yeah, you spear hook the eel and then you throw it into the sand. And then I, you I don't even know where it. I go looking for eel. Yeah, most people don't. Yeah. <laughs> but the the eel river runs through our our land. So. Got it. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's that's a, a really interesting part of the indigenous um, connection to the land that obviously is more robust than so many of us can imagine. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, t- tell us more. Uh, what makes this tribe unique? Yeah, so the Weot tribe is a very small tribe. Most tribes are are thousands, um, and this tribe is currently around 500. So it's a very small tribe and um, has a pretty dark history, like a lot of tribes, um, but our tribe was nearly wiped out. Um, so in, in 1850, like the there was like a contest essentially for for explorers to find Humboldt Bay and discover gold. And um, when they came into the land, they started taking land for themselves. And, um, you know, just like what we had talked about before, just very entitled. Um, They would kidnap children and sell them as slaves. And um, they captured young Indian women for sex and sometimes they simply just killed for the sport of it um but around 1856 um there's just so much land that had been taken in non-peaceful ways that the uh, tribe began to resist finally um and then in 1858 there was a state-formed militia um of for white people that they received monthly payments to hunt, attack, and kill Indians. And it would, by today's equivalent, it would be like receiving like $8,400 a month to go and kill um, a different race. Um, Uh, What? Yeah, it was insane. Um, So that led to what is known as the massacre at Indian Island, which is my tribal land. Um, So in February of 1860, uh, the Wiat people had gathered at their traditional site on Indian Island for the um, annual world renewal ceremony. So every year they would go do this, and it lasted seven to ten days, and the men would replenish supplies, um, leaving the elders and the women on the island and then going in uh, inland at nighttime to replenish supplies and then take them back out. And while they were out getting supplies, um, settlers um, massacred the elders and the women and the children that were sleeping and resting on the island um, in the middle of the night. Um, so 
They were killed with hatchets and knives and um, just brutally murdered while they were sleeping. Um, It wiped out most of the tribe at that point. The ones that were remaining um, were taken to uh, refuge at Fort Humboldt, which um, at that point, nearly half of them died of exposure and starvation. And then the surviving Weats at that point were forcibly taken to the Klamath River Reservation, um, which then they were essentially forced to do slave labor and um, move to the Smith River Reservation. But they were were whipped, they were starved, and they were sometimes just murdered at that point. Um, And after after like the massacre happened um there were only a few survivors after the wake of everything settled um one happened to be a small infant child found in a dead mother's arms gosh um and that ended up actually being my direct lineage so um there were just a handful of survivors and that is how my family remained existent yeah, that is, is just brutal violence. It's attempted genocide. Yeah, absolutely. I can't imagine that little girl's experience growing up. Yeah. Having to carry on, carry that legacy and recover uh, the the identity and heritage of a people right. through her. That's uh, just... Uh, unfathomable yeah yeah it wasn't it was intense to learn about it it was intense to process it um and then you know recently we took a trip down and we took our family down and there's we thought that there would be some kind of large memorial site for what had happened and there's not there's like a small plaque that says that the U.S. deems this an important site. And that's as much as they're willing to acknowledge yeah. what happened. Yeah. And it it was a very, like, until really recently, like in the last decade, it was something that you just didn't talk about within that community, within that Humboldt Bay area. Um, there was a lot of denial that things happened. Um, some from, of the, it, from the white community or right. indigenous as well? Um, from the white community. I mean, I mean, I guess I'm asking, it makes sense the white community would deny it. Yeah. But did the indigenous community also live in fear to, to bring it up? I think, I think some of that was the case. Um, it was a, it was hard to bring up, you know, for mm-hmm. tribal people, but it was also just so well buried. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it had to do with that there was just so much politic involved in um, who was in charge of the city of the laws of the lawmaking that it just it kept getting buried deeper and deeper and not discussed what what is the current state of that community now in that place yeah just in the last 10 years they've given back indian island to our people which has been a huge win um it's that is where we did all of our like ceremonial um things and so it was great to have that land back they're able to go out now and and still do their annual ceremonies and celebrations Mm -hmm. um it's 
it's always going to be an ongoing battle just because there are so many different opinions and um, Native people are um, often not seen as as human, you know, like they were dehumanized in so many ways. And um, the way that they practiced life was seen as evil uh, without understanding it. And I think that it's an important reminder, even just for me in my daily life, to not live in fear of what is different or unknown, but mm-hmm. to like fully understand it and be curious about why people do what they do and and the words they use. Because even going into a different ethnic central church is a different experience. Mm-hmm. And um, we can learn a lot from each other if we are open to that. So is there any sort of felt peace having the land back as a result of all of this terrible history? There definitely is some peace. Um, it's been a very slow process. Um, when the massacre happened, people would sell the bones of the deceased for um, f- for different reasons, but they ended up in museums up and down the coastline. Um, and they got a lot of them back, and then there was a, a lot of the bones at a at a museum, a preserve a site. It's like a research center um, at UC Berkeley. And they had at one point said they had given all that they had back of that massacre. And then it came out that they didn't. So um, they just recently received the remains, um, the rest of the remains of the 10,000, or U, sorry, UC Berkeley houses remains of 10,000 Native Americans. Um, it's the largest collection in the U.S. So it's it's a large collection. So like my peoples from that massacre were part of that 10,000. Wow. So they released those to our tribe more recently and we were able to have like ceremonies to actually honor and bury the dead and mourn them. Wow. That is such a a trauma to overcome as a group of people, but to have to go through the legality of getting a predominantly white institution to give back to you what right. belongs. Right. Uh, I, I think it was just last year that Berkeley announced that they were actually giving free tuition to any Native students. And at first I was like, oh, that's that's cool, you know? Uh-huh. And then like as as I learned more about like the history of our tribe, even with them, it was like, well, yeah, you, you should right. like, you've been kind of using us along the way for your own personal gain. So. Right. There seems to be a terrible and complicated history of advocating for tribal rights. Are there other ways you're experiencing this today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things right now is that today the Supreme Court is hearing arguments to determine if ICWA, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act, will remain in place. Um, This act just helps to place Native children with other Native families 
or family within their family, um, if at all possible, to protect and and stabilize Native culture and and their family upbringing. Um, And that is at risk of being overturned. Yeah, please share more with us about the value of Indigenous children growing up in Indigenous homes. With systems like ICWA, what they have been able to do is to ensure that we're trying the best that we possibly can, that Native kids get brought up in Native culture, because so much of our culture has been stripped away from us, and it is so difficult to raise Native children with Native customs and and cultural values that this just helps facilitate and foster that. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that for my tribe specifically, we're just now like re-recording the language that was lost because when so many people either didn't speak it anymore or were killed in the massacre, um, it was just a lost language for so long. And so there are things like that where the language and the cultural traditions and the dances, the historical dances that are just part of your ritual and ceremonies um, are not being passed down generation to generation, and you're losing that. Um, and it, it reminds me of, you know, like as the Israelites left Egypt, God called them to remember, remember, remember. And it's like that You, if you forget who you are, if you forget where you've come from and you lose the value of what was fought to get you to where you're at today. And so it's so important to hang on to those values and those cultural attachments that allow you to continue to tell your story to the generations to come. So when you discovered all of this about you, connecting your history to the survivor of this massacre, Mm -hmm. What did your what did your felt identity become? Like how how did that change for you? Yeah, it was it was huge. It made me feel um I mean incredibly fortunate for one that I that my bloodline continued in that way. Um but also it just made me all the more hungry to learn a deeper appreciation for my tribal culture and for my tribal history. Um, not only the Wiyot side, but my uncle likes to remind me that I'm just as much Yurok as I am Wiyot, mm-hmm. um, even though I can't affiliate on a government, you know, I, or on a tribal ID. You have to um, choose one. I have to choose one. Um, that I, my bloodline is just as much one as the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so just really researching and and learning for myself and asking a lot of questions um not just for myself but for for my family and for my kids it's just super important to me for them to grow up knowing more than i did um um, not having to to struggle figuring out their identity i think for a long time i felt um too white to identify as as native and i'm learning that that's not at all 
like the heart behind the native culture. Like mm-hmm. they want me to embrace who I am and who I who I have come from, who my bloodline is. Um, you know, walking onto tribal land this summer was such a cool experience to even say my grandma's name and they knew instantly who I was. They welcomed me and my family all with blonde hair as, um, as family. It was, it wasn't, we weren't out of place at all. We didn't feel out of place. And that's just a testament to just how hospitable and, um, generous they Mm -hmm. are. Um, they're always willing to ask my questions anytime I email them something about either our culture or our language or anything like that. They're just always so excited to share um, the history and the traditions of our tribe. Wow. That's a, an amazing thing to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we heard from you and your husband, Matt, who shared a lot about the uh, the sociopolitical history of indigenous peoples in Oregon. And because he works in law and juvenile justice, a good deal of the racism written into our legal systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two of you have three girls, each of which carry your heritage. What does it mean to raise them as indigenous today? Um, my three girls are, are spitfires mm-hmm. and they have a hunger for life and for adventure. And, so it was incredible to see them, first of all, on our tribal land, just like running around with all the Native kids and rolling down giant hills with an ocean view and eating uh, salmon cooked over the fire. Um, wow. yeah. Just like just an incredible experience for, for all of us. Um, but also just knowing that um, the the tribe's history is so um, heartbreaking, but also so encouraging that they're fighting so hard and they have such resilience in them. And that's a resilience that I want to pass on to our girls. I want them to grow up knowing the history of their bloodline, knowing that they have been shown this favor in survival and to fully embrace that and to push into what is truly their identity and not just who they are in Christ, but who they are rich in our deep culture and heritage of our, of our Wiat and Yurok blood. So in what ways do you find yourself teaching them to grieve the terrible history here? I don't know if you've fully told them or not. That's a, that's a hard thing. It's a hard story to hear. And in what ways are you teaching them to celebrate their heritage uh, as, as kids who get to live into this earlier in life than you were able to, to embrace this earlier in life? How are you teaching them to grieve and celebrate at the same time? Our oldest understands the massacre a little bit better. She understands um, what the history of that is. Our two younger ones it's a bit heavy for them to kind of grasp at this point, but I think they do understand that there aren't very many of us. Mm -hmm. They do understand that um, my grandma, their great grandma and their, their grandpa are, are people that are living a different life than, than them. Um, My 
even my dad, just being around him, he's much more reserved and quiet and doesn't trust as easily. And that comes from his native upbringing, um, you know, as well as some of his personality quirks, but like his history, especially with like the Vietnam mm -hmm. stuff that he had to go through, um, that speaks volumes. Um, so learning that relationships are hard for him um, and even being able to meet him where he's at has been huge for, for me and for them. Um, also just teaching them things that are fun about our culture, not just the dances, because they love the dances. Um, my dad jokes and says there are, you know, traditional tribal dances, and then there are moneymaker dances, like the flashy ones with all the fun outfits. Um, but there are like true traditional dances that we actually, you're not allowed to film them. You're not allowed to record wow. them. Um, they're just they're they're sacred and um being able to expose the girls to those kinds of things is is huge um but also just the fun stuff like uh my great grandpa had a a, a gambling drum okay. <laughs> that the girls love to play with uh -huh. you know my dad has it at his house and so the girls like love to like look at it and and hear the story about you know how they would play these gambling games with these drums and um just cool stuff like that that is so rich in story and in heritage but is so um you know it's not common yeah it's not stuff Unique you tradition. hear yeah it's yeah. not stuff you hear um and then just teaching them to embrace that it's okay to not look a certain way um i think that i just struggled with that for so long with who i was that um i don't want that to be something that i pass on to them i want them to be proud and to be able to claim their native ancestry and and have conversations with people about it um they are tribal members so they should be proud of that and um, even like our, my oldest daughter has a, a teacher that's Native, and she just really bonded with her over wow. that. And they have really great conversations, and they, you know, her teacher gives her recommended reading and everything like that. So it's that's great. It's really cool to have that connection at just her local elementary school, even. Yeah. Um, but the teacher just got so excited, you know that that Noel was Native and that they could share that bond too. So. Love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, to end, uh, what has it been like being an, ind an indigenous woman mm -hmm. and a follower of Jesus, um, growing up in the church, being a part of the church? And how do you see yourselves raising your daughters the same way? I think it's important for me to uh, re continually remind myself that I'm Native. I think within our culture, it's easy to just assimilate into what everyone else looks like, how everyone else thinks, the way that things just naturally kind of progress. Um, I, I'm a challenger by nature, mm -hmm. so some of that comes a little more natural to me. Um, but at the same time, I I can often find myself holding back or... Um, not speaking up in ways that I know that I probably should more. And I think some of that is just constantly being reminded of 
my culture and my heritage and to not forget that and and not forgetting that means looking back and and owning that more and that is just something that I will continue to do. Um, the First Nations version of the Bible has been super helpful for that. Um, mm-hmm. Just connecting with the language that they use to name um, Creator, and it is such a beautiful way to describe things. And um, that has just been so enriching, not only in my life, but in Matt's life as well. And so being able to even read the girls, um, the Bible in that way has been so refreshing and healing. Um, and it's, I mean, that Bible has been healing for a lot of tribes at this point, uh, which is huge. Um, but within the church, I think just being a voice and speaking up um I don't want awareness to just become awareness. I want it to mm-hmm. become advocacy and um, people actually doing something. You know, justice isn't justice without feet. And so being able to talk about justice is one thing, but being able to truly act on justice is something entirely different. Mm-hmm. Um, I am excited about Bridgetown's heart for that. I am excited that there might be people with similar hearts for Native people that want to um, reach out to organizations that are local. There are amazing, amazing organizations in Portland that are um, doing great work, and I'm hoping that this is just the start. With that, as we end, I'd like to one more time acknowledge that what we now call Portland, Oregon, and Multnomah County are the traditional lands of the Cowlitz, Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Wasco, Malala, and Watlala bands of the Chinook, and many other nations of the, quote, Big River, also known as the Columbia. The land we occupy as a nation, as a city, and as a church was taken unjustly. Today, people from these bands have become part of the Confederate tribes of the Grand Ronde, the Confederate tribes of the Siletz Indians, as well as the Chinook Nation and Cowlitz Nation. Thank you, Tab, for being here, willing to share your story with us, and being a part of this church family. It is the multi-ethnic identity that you contribute to that makes us more like the kingdom of God. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Indigenous heritage, Oregon's racist past, and Bridgetown's vision for the future, visit bridgetown.church justice.